Let's bow together. Father, thank you again for this morning and this afternoon, Lord, that we can be together and we can sing your praises. We can worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, I thank you for this time we have in your word. And I pray that you will enable me to share it exactly as you desire and that we would receive it as uh, you intended and that we would also respond in a way that glorifies you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been uh, ridiculed? Have you ever been criticized? Have you ever been put down? Have you ever had bad things said about you? Um, I think everyone has had that happen, whether a believer or not. Uh, there's The reality is we live in a sinful world. And there are critics out there, and there are those who ridicule and those who put down. Now, we have that saying that we share with kids in our culture, sticks and stones may break the bone or my bones, but names will never hurt. Well, the reality is sticks and stones may break bones, but those bones heal. Sometimes the words that people use uh, sting pretty hard, and they can last pretty hard. And so with that in mind, if you are a believer and you desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to serve him. And if you're about his will, we're going to see that you're going to be attacked, that Satan will try to discourage you, and he will do so through those who are in his domain, uh, those uh, who are his uh, witting or unwitting servants. And they will use, as we will see today, words to discourage us. So with that in mind, how can we keep from being overcome by our enemy's reproach, by our enemy's reproach? Well, we're going to begin looking at how to resist Satan's schemes from uh, Nehemiah. Indeed, if you were to read Nehemiah up to chapter 3, you'd think, okay, there's a little bit of trouble in 2, but chapter 3 looks like they got it done, we're good to go. Uh, But when we come to chapter 4, and actually 4 through 6, we will realize that there is quite a bit of opposition. And it's in these chapters we will see many different tactics that Satan uses through the enemy to try to discourage God's people from doing God's work. And today we're going to see one of those, which is our enemy's reproach. Now, uh, we have been looking at Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is based around the third return of the Jews from exile, and that third return consists of Nehemiah. Uh, There was the initial return, which were those to come when Cyrus let them go in 538, or proclaim that, and they left in 539 B.C. to rebuild the temple. And after some difficulty and some things, years later, 16 years I think it was, a little more, they got the temple done. They got the temple done. But uh, we see that uh, the walls and the city was in shambles. And so uh, sometime later, 58 years later, um, Ezra comes and is going to install, institute God's law with God's people, but also begin to rebuild. But there were some difficulties. The bad guys caused the Persian Empire emperor to cause a stop work, and they were discouraged. Now, Nehemiah, as we saw in chapter 1, found out about the condition of these Jews. that they, they, were, they were experiencing reproach, and it was a great evil in that context. And he was mourning over it, chapter 1, and it brought him to his knees for four months to pray for these Jews. And within that time, it became apparent that he was the one God would use to come uh, help build the walls and put up the gates, as we see which was a great reproach upon those Jews because of the condition of the city. Now, Nehemiah prayed, and we see his prayer. Uh, He prayed for four months, but we see his prayer in the end of this time uh, in chapter 1, where Nehemiah reveals and understands that God is a great God, and nothing is too hard for him. Nothing's too hard for him, and he understands that. And he acknowledges his greatness and superiority over the situation, and he persists in prayer. He persists. And also he intercedes for God's people. He then reveals uh, their culpability and why they got to that circumstance and confess sin for the people of Israel. We see that and himself. And then he reminded the Lord of his promises from his word 
and then made his specific request. You see, he was the cupbearer of the king in a very high position. And he made a request to the Lord that God would show favor upon him in his conversation with the king, obviously in relationship to asking to go and help these Jews. Now we saw in chapter 2 that he did go before the king, that Nehemiah is a man who walks with the Lord. And when the opportunity came, he prayed and he answered the king and asked that he might go. And the king gave him his request, but he asked very wisely And he also asked for letters that he might make it through the territories from the different provinces. And he asked for uh, approval to get wood from the king's uh, forest, from Asaph, the keeper, a letter for him. And so Nehemiah was granted these things because the good hand of his God was upon him. He was granted these things. And so we saw that Nehemiah was then on the way to Jerusalem. But there were those who heard about it. Sanballat and Tobiah, and it was a great evil to them. They didn't like it, that someone might come to help these Jews. Someone might come. And when Nehemiah got there, for three days, he he didn't say or tell anybody anything, and then he went out at night and did his secret tour of the walls. He didn't tell the Jews, the nobles, the people who would build the wall, because the word would leak out, right? And he didn't tell the bad guys, the officials either. And after that, he came to those uh, who would rebuild the wall and he encouraged them based on the condition that it was in that they would rebuild together, together. And he shared how God's good hand had been upon him and, and the words that the king had shared with him. And they got to work. They got to work. And then we saw last week a summary of all the work that happened, and it showed us Nehemiah's leadership skills and how those who were being led followed him and did exactly what they should do, and they accomplished the task. It's really an overview in chapter 3 of the whole process and who did it and where they worked. And we saw some interesting things. There were those who were from inside the town that built around their houses. There were some that came from outside that helped out. And there were some that were unwilling. And there were some who were zealous to do the work. And that leads us to our passage today, where we're going to see that we should not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Paul will share that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2. We shouldn't be ignorant. We are not ignorant of them, of those schemes Satan has certain schemes that he uses, and we're going to see that today specifically to try to discourage and stop God's people from doing God's work. And if you are doing God's work, if you are obeying him, you are doing it in your family, you're doing it in the body of Christ, Satan is going to try to discourage you. Expect it, as we'll say. And there are many saints, I believe, on the sidelines because they have believed the lie And they have uh, sinned in that sense, and they are no longer about God's business because they were discouraged and demoralized through people that Satan used to do so. So how can we be those who would not be caught up in that? Well, we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the 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 the, this against Satan and his and his uh, minions, right? And we know that we should stand firm in the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6. Well, how do we do that? Well, in Nehemiah, we gain insight into Satan's schemes, and these things were written for our instruction to whom the end of the ages have come. And so we are gaining instruction from this. So how can we keep from being overcome by our enemy's reproach? Because words do hurt. It hurts. People say things about you. If you say it doesn't hurt, I don't know. Maybe you got a you know armored heart or something. I don't know, but they hurt. How do we uh, overcome or keep from being overcome and overcome from those things? All right, let's take a look at our passage, Nehemiah chapter four. And again, we're going to be seeing through chapters four through six multiple tactics that Satan will use. And this is the first one that we're going to look at today. It's the first one. Now it came about, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1, that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and and he said, Even what they're building, 
If a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. So then how can we keep from being overcome by uh, Satan's reproach through his uh, witting or unwitting servants? Notice we need to recognize that he uses words to try to discourage us. He uses reproach to try to discourage us. Again, verse 1, now it came about... When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Do you remember what we learned about Sanballat? And we'll see Tobiah in a minute. We already read about him. Look back in chapter 2, verse 10. Look back in chapter 2, verse 10. This is their introduction. And when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. They were upset. It was literally a great evil to them that someone came to help. The same word being used of what was happening to the Jews. It was a great evil to them that the walls were, were down and all those things. And, and so we see that they have the exact opposite reaction. Exact opposite reaction. Now we know these guys, they were the bad guys and they were introduced, as I mentioned, in chapter 2. Now, who are these guys? Since we're going to see them again today, let's just review what we learned about them. First of all, we have Sanballat, and back in chapter 2, he is called the Horonite. Sanballat, in Hebrew, means strength, means strength. And we're going to see he puts on a pretty strong face. He does. He seems to live up to his name, but in a very wicked way. So now we have that term, Sanballat the Horonite, spoken three times, twice, or once in chapter 2 and and. Uh, Twice in chapter 2, excuse me, and once in chapter 13. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, this is the same Sanballat here that is mentioned in chapter 4. Now, there are some names that are similar, as we'll see later on. It's a little list that, are, that you'll see the same name, but it's not the same person. It'll say it's the son of someone else. This is the same Sanballat from chapter 2. Well, what do we know about him? First of all, he is Sanballat the Horonite, and that could mean he is an inhabitant of Beth, Horon, and the area in Ephraim. But more likely, it means that he is one from Horinam, which is a place in Moab, which would make him a Moabite, make him a Moabite. And in chapter 13, we know that when Elishib, the high priest's grandson, sinned, uh, and they sinned by intermarrying with uh, one of Sanballat's daughters, that he was involved there. We see that. And it's very clear that Sanballat was a high official holding some type of high office. Some say he might be the governor of Samaria. It's possible more historically speaking that his son was actually the governor with the same name as Samaria. But he was a high official. We know that. He was a high official. Now the Samaritans were a mix of Jews and Assyrians and they were not considered Jews. And there was actually a lot of hatred between the Samaritans, Samarians and and the Jews. And we see that actually with like the, 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 what the Lord shared about the Good Samaritan. We see the hatred from the Jewish side. But there's both. There's from both sides. So then we have Sanballat. He was official. He had a lot of power, as we're going to see. And he was an evil man. He was one of the enemies of the Jews. And he's upset that someone would want to help these Jews. And he's really upset, as we'll see, that they're beginning to rebuild the wall. Really upset. Furious, as we'll see. Now, what about Tobiah, the Ammonite official? Tobiah means Yah. That's a short, short version for Yahweh. Yahweh is my God. Yah is my God. Sounds like a good guy, right? Yet we're going to see he is an enemy of Nehemiah and the Lord's people, and thus the Lord. He is one who infiltrates the Jews religiously. He's a false brother. Later on in chapter 13, we're going to see that Elishib... The high priest did evil for Tobiah, and he prepared for him a chamber in the courts of the temple of God. And he had all his stuff there, evidently. But Nehemiah, when he found out, he kicked him out and got all his stuff out of there. So Tobiah is a bad guy, but you might think he's a good guy, but he's a bad guy. 
Notice he's called Tobiah the Ammonite official. In this statement, I believe this reveals his true affinity. That's why we're being told this. He's an Ammonite. And he's not, a, he's not one that has turned to Yahweh to truly believe. He is one, uh, an Ammonite official. He's obviously a government. It says, literally servant. He's obviously official in terms of his position. He has power. Later on, we're going to see Tobiah writes letters, official letters back and forth with the nobles. He's got power. He's got power. And if you'll remember, because of Lot's sin, we have the Ammonites and the Moabites. And to understand the wickedness of these people, you need to understand where their hearts are at towards Israel, by the way. We're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 25, God pronounces their judgment because of their attitude towards Israel when Israel was expelled, how they rejoiced over that, how they had an evil attitude thinking Israel would be destroyed. Look at Psalm 83, and this is a psalm where we gain understanding about these peoples and their heart attitudes towards the Jews. And we gain understanding about Tobiah and his attitude and Sanballat and his attitude because they actually hate the Lord. And when people actually internally hate the Lord, they hate God's people, no matter what they appear to be. Psalm 83, verse 1, a psalm, a song of Asaph, a psalm of Asaph, a, a song, a psalm of Asaph. Oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. Oh God, do not be still. Kind of a theme going on here about calling out to the Lord with enemies, right? For behold, thine enemies make an uproar. That's the key. They're, they're God's enemies. And we're going to see that in our passage. And that's the difference between God's enemies and attacking us versus our own personal enemies, as we'll see later on talked about in the New Testament. Thine enemies make an uproar. And those who what? hate thee have exalted themselves they make shrewd plans against thy people they conspire together against thy treasured ones and they have said come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of israel be remembered no more that's their goal right for they have conspired together with one mind against thee do they make a covenant the tents of edom and the ishmaelites moab and the hagrites Gibel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, and the inhabitants of Tyre, and Assyria has adjoined with them. They have, all, they have become the help to the children of Lot. That's the Moabites and the Ammonites. Selah. They hate God, thus they hate God's people. And God tells us about that. So we got these government officials with a lot of power, probably supreme power in that area, Sandal and Tobiah, they're introduced. And they are the enemies of the Jews and those who serve the Lord and Nehemiah. But remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. But yet it comes in the context of flesh and blood. The Lord Jesus even made this clear about how the world would hate us. John 15, if the world hates you, that's the people, that's those in Satan's domain. He is the God of this world, right? If the world hates you, John 15, 18, Know that it hated me before it hated you. See, they hate the Lord, and thus they hate his people, like we saw in Psalm 83. Same thing, right? Same thing. That's what it is. And so then, he says here, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, as I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word which I said to you, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul praying for protection from those who do not have faith. You're, we're gonna, we, Satan, yes, our battles against Satan, but there are those who come in the flesh that are his servants. But our, we don't fight against them. We fight in the context of trusting the Lord and praying and depending on him, as we will see here today. We know he also has false brethren. We know, like Tobias, and we'll see. We know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, and there's, therefore it's not surprising, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 11, that his servants disguise themselves as, servant, as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. So yes, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it comes out as in flesh and blood. You know, Satan doesn't come down in person and start mocking you. This mocking, as we're going to see, comes through Sanballat and Tobiah. 
And it's the mocking that discourages and demoralizes the builders. So how are we to respond? How are we to respond? Let's take a look back at our passage. Now, it came about that when Sanballat heard that we, Nehemiah's working with him, he's not an ivory tower um, uh, uh, leader, he's there working with him, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. The term furious becomes, speaks of being hot, literally hot. You know, we've all experienced anger. He is, he is hot. He is hot. He is burning with anger. And the word translated anger uh, is a synonym for that, can be translated vexed or very angry. And then we have a modifying word to become great. He was hot and became very angry or greatly vexed. And notice what he did. And he mocked the Jews. The term mocked means to deride, to scoff, or to mock. We know what that means. We know to ridicule. And folks, in here, in chapter 4, as I mentioned, we see one of Satan's tactics to try to discourage God's people. It is being mocked. It is being spoken against. It is being ridiculed. It's being criticized, as we'll see, by those who would name the name of the Lord and those who don't. We're going to see that. We're going to see that. And so how do I know that this mockery was designed to demoralize him? Look down in uh, verse 4. Hear, O Gar, God, how we're despised. That's through their mockery, right? Uh, return their reproach. You see that? Reproach, right? Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized... The builders, what we're going to read coming from Sanballat's mouth and Tobiah gets back to the Jews and they become demoralized. That's Satan's tactic to cause us to be demoralized, to give up, to give up. So then when Sanballat and Tobiah heard they were building the wall, he became furious and very and mocked the Jews. And notice how he mocks them. Verse 2. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from dusty rubble, even the burned ones? That's the mocking. That's not like a big deal, but it's actually a very big deal, as we're going to see. It's a big deal because this is Satan's tactic this is Satan's tactic. And notice he does it in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria. He does it publicly. Now, his brothers could be speaking, some translated his colleagues, uh, could be speaking of his brethren, uh, those of his family or his ancestry. And it says he spoke in the presence of the wealthy men of Samaria. The term wealthy is literally forceful. So some translate it, you'll see a little note, army. That, you know, somebody is wealthy because they've, with force in a sense, that's possible translation, but it's probably a better translation that he did it, spoke in front of the army of Samaria. That's more likely. That's more likely. And so then he does it publicly with the bigwigs and the military of Samaria, right? And evidently, these public words get back to the Jews. Remember, Nehemiah was smart. He didn't tell anybody because he knew the word would get around, right? And so here it does get around from Sanballat. Now, what does he say specifically? Notice the first thing he says, and this helps us identify Satan's tactics so that we don't get sidetracked and stop working and doing what God wants us to do. Notice he says, what are these feeble Jews doing? The term feeble means weak. In essence, he's saying, you're weak, you're feeble. You're too feeble to complete the task. You can't do it. Now, this is what Satan does. He always uses a little bit of truth. But he gets us to focus on that rather than the whole truth. The reality is this is true. They are feeble juice. And the reality is we are inadequate. But if we focus on that alone, we will quit. But what God wants us to focus on is the fact that we're inadequate, but he is adequate. That he is adequate. The Apostle Paul indeed reveals this truth to the Corinthians. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul calls upon, you can see him in the congregation, calls on, hey, look around. Take a look. I want you to see something. 
Think about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. Hey, look around. Consider it. Brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what? The weak things uh, of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Yes, I am weak, but the reality is like Paul would share to the Corinthians later on in Second Corinthians, we're not adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Satan wants you to focus on the first part. You are weak, which is so true. But we get focused on ourself and don't add in the truth of God that when we are weak, as we will see, we are strong. He has put this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may not be from us, but from God. What about the Apostle Paul in Second uh, Corinthians 12, where he was given a vision uh he was he was taken to the third heaven and saw things that he can't heard things he can't repeat and god had to give him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from exalting himself a messenger from satan and so uh the lord has to respond to paul when he asks for it to be removed three times and so uh second corinthians 12 look at verse 8 concerning this i entreated the lord three times that it might that it might depart from me And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You feeble Jews. Yes, we're feeble, but God is great. And God's power will accomplish what he desires through the weak things. See, that's the right attitude, you see. Satan wants you to think of how feeble you are, how weak you are. You can't do it. And we buy into that lie, we sin. We sin, we buy into that lie, and we suffer, and we quit. My grace is sufficient for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with what? Insults, right? With distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. That's what it's for. Not for your sin, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Satan wants you to focus on your weakness. God wants you to focus on him and trust him. So we need to realize this, that yes, people will say things that are hurtful, that are true to a certain extent, but it is not the whole story for the believer. It is not the whole story for the believer. Yes, we are weak, but when we are in Christ, trusting in him, abiding in him, we are strong. We are strong. Be strengthened in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, having done everything to stand firm, right? So what else does Sambalot say? Are they going to, this is the middle of two or end of two, are they going to restore it for themselves? Now here, there's some interpretive issues here uh, that complicate this verse. The term restore could be translated left alone. But I think either way, it makes the same point, by the way. Uh, So it could be translated, are they left alone to themselves going to do it? You know, or here, are they going to restore it for themselves? Same point. There's a small group. Can they do this humongous task? You're too small to finish the task. You don't have enough people. You can't do it. You can't do it. Well, uh, if they looked at that, they would lose heart. You lack the manpower. You can't do it. Can this group do it themselves? Well, that's true, but it's not the whole truth. Remember throughout scripture, God uses circumstances to reveal that he doesn't need us, that he can use anything and anyone, no matter what the size. Remember David and Goliath, right? What about Gideon against the Midianites? Judges chapter 7. Gideon initially had 32,000 people to go against the Midianites. Then the Lord weeded that down ultimately to 300 who lapped like a dog so that God would be glorified. You see, Satan wants us to think, you don't got enough to do it. You don't have the resource. You can't do it. But we need to look at God. Is anything too hard for God? Is anything impossible for him? 
Not at all. It's his will. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. So we need to see the whole truth when we are being mocked and not focus on it. And sometimes we spend our time defending ourselves, which we don't need to do. Don't do that. Focus on the truth, the things above, the truth. Add that into these pieces of truth, which are partially true, but are lies if you take only that, right? Right? That's how Satan works. Well, notice he says another thing here afterwards. Can they offer sacrifices? I was trying to figure out what is he talking about here? Is he talking about sacrifices in the temple? Well, earlier Ezra offered sacrifices, so that's working. And later on, Nehemiah is going to offer sacrifice, so that's working. What is he talking about here? Is he saying they can't offer sacrifices? No, I think what he's saying here is, do these Jews think that they can offer a sacrifice to the Lord and these walls will just pop right up? That they're just going to show up because they prayed to God and offered a sacrifice? Is that what these Jews think? You know, the reality, Satan tries to get us to think, well, just trusting the Lord and doing this isn't going to get anything accomplished. Seeking him first. Well, really, you got to get out and do it. You don't have enough, so you can't do it. Well, that's how Satan does things. Can they offer sacrifices? Will this sacrifices cause the wall to just spring up? Will God whip it out of thin air? You can hear Satan's accusations. On a human level, level, the sacrifices aren't going to do anything. But folks, when we trust the Lord and offer ourselves to him, he will accomplish his work to us. He will. What's the next ridicule or mockery that we see here? Can they finish in a day? What does he mean by this? He's ridiculing them, pointing to the fact, humanly speaking, that the task is too great. It's too great. Can you do it in a day? You see, Satan is using Samballot to try to get these Jews to focus on the task and how overwhelming it is and to give up. Could they finish it in a day? Obviously not. Right? It's, it's too big. He's using an example here. The same thing Satan uses through people for us to try to discourage us, humanly speaking, when things are impossible, what God calls us to do. You really think you could get that done? <laughs> well, the reality is, if God is calling us to do it, he will do it. He will do it. Again, is anything too difficult for the Lord? No. Nehemiah understood this. He understood that the Lord would enable him to be uh, set free from his position, that he could even do the impossible and come and help the Jews. Nehemiah understood. He trusted the Lord. Now look at the last ridicule and mockery from Sanballat in the end of verse 2. Can they revive the stones from dusty rubble, even the burnt ones? The term dusty rubble literally is translated heaps of dust. The wall was in bad shape. No doubt. Satan is, this is true. This is true. Again, a truth about it, but not bringing in the whole truth. This is how Satan mocks and ridicules. Can they bring these stones to life? Revive, really means to bring to life. Can they revive them um, from piles of dusty rubble, including the burnt ones? Now, the answer, probably humanly speaking, is probably not. It's probably too hard. Look at it and go, That's, that task is too hard. It's all burnt down. It's, it's piles of dust. How can you make a wall out of that? But that's not the full story. You see, Satan, through Sanballat, is trying to tempt them to look at the circumstances alone rather than to trust the Lord to work through them and accomplish his task. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's at your work. Maybe it's at church. Satan will tempt you with ridicule. Maybe you're just hearing those voices, in a sense, from the outside. Or uh, through people, going to tempt you to see only what you see rather than to add in the eternal realities. We are to set our mind on the things above, not the things of earth. We're to set our minds on, on Christ. We're to believe the truth that he has revealed. You see, Satan is a prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in what? The faith, trusting what God has said is true, trusting in the Lord in spite of what you see. We walk by faith, not by sight. And Satan will tempt you to walk by sight. And if you do, you will be discouraged. You know, if you want to be discouraged, let's say you've got trouble in your marriage. You want to be discouraged, look at your marriage. Okay? You've got trouble with your kids. You want to be discouraged, look at your kids. Focus on Jesus Christ and trust him to help you do what he calls you to do in those areas. Work, marriage, kids, at church. Trust in him. Him, focus on him.
Okay, we'll notice we got a little pile on here, Tobiah. He's going to pile on here. Uh, verse 3. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite, remember he's an Ammonite. Don't forget that. Uh, he's not, he's not God is, you know, Yah is good and he's my God, whatever that, whatever his name means. He doesn't think that. He actually hates him, as we'll say. Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, so he's hanging out next to him and he's gonna, he's gonna pile on. Even if what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down their stone wall. He's saying, in essence, what you've done so far is nothing. If a fox jumped on it, it would collapse. If you leaned against it, it'd fall over. If a cat went on it, it'd fall over. The reality is he's saying, hey, you're, what you're doing is, is, is not sufficient. It's not working. He's demoralizing the builders. And this stuff does hurt because there's partial truth in it. And if we focus on it, we will succumb to Satan's attacks. We need to believe what God has said, that God will enable us. His good hand is upon us. He will enable us to build the wall. He will do this. He is for us. If God is for us, who could be against us? So then, Tobiah piles on here, and the words obviously hurt. It's difficult when you're criticized, and some of that criticism may be partially true. And then others hear that, and they latch on to that part. Then you got everyone criticizing you. Don't focus on that. Focus on the Lord. Set your mind on the things above. Words hurt, and there's a temptation to give up. I tell you, with all the criticism I've had here, with those groups of evil people that came to our body and praise the Lord are gone, with all that criticism, I was tempted to give up a lot of times. That was Satan's goal to get me to throw in the towel and say, forget it, forget it. But God is good. God is faithful, and he's good because it's not about us. God is faithful. He will work through anyone to do his will if they're willing to submit to him. So then, he wants us to give up. Remember, verse 5, Nehemiah says, they've demoralized the builders. It actually started to work a little bit. It did. Now, Nehemiah is going to have to share some truth. And we're going to see from his response how we are to respond. That we're to get on our knees. And we're to pray about the circumstances and bring it before God. And, we're going to, and we need to see it from God's perspective. And that needs to come out in our prayer. It needs to come out in our prayer. And then we need to have the right heart and get to work. So then, sticks and stones uh, break my bones and nails over her. Well, I don't think that's true. Uh, If you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be ridiculed. And sometimes it comes from the inside. Sometimes it comes from the people we love. Uh, Satan can use them. You've got to focus on the Lord and not the half-truth, which is false by itself. Right? How are we going to respond it's going to happen. You want to raise your kids rightly, you're going to get ridiculed. Whether it's, whether it's family, whether it's other people, whatever it might be. You want to do the right thing in your marriage, it's going to happen. You want to do the right thing in the body of Christ, it's going to happen. Do the right thing at work, work in the Lord, you got, it's going to happen. How are you going to respond? Because it is coming, and the goal is to demoralize you so that you'll quit. What are you going to do? Well, we need to add in the truth. We need to focus on Christ. We need to recognize that when we're weak, he's strong. And if God is for us, who could be against us? And that he works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. I need to resist the devil and humble myself, submit to God and resist the devil, right? I need to uh, be on the alert because he prowls about like a roaring lion and I need to resist him firm in the faith, believing what God said, not this little snippet of lies, that are being thrown my way. Belief. What God has said. Firm in the faith. Trust the Lord. Focus on the unseen things rather than the things that are seen, which Satan is trying to get you to focus on. Now, some of you listening, some of you here may have realized, I bought into it. And I bought into a lie. I believed a lie. And I have given up in some area that I should be functioning in. I've given up. Uh, Just confess that and get right with the Lord. Confess it and get right with the Lord and trust him because he's a great God. And through your weakness and through your inability, he will manifest his absolute ability and sufficiency. 
If God is for us, who could be against us? And as we'll see, then get back to work. And whatever it is, get back to work. So then, yes, what people say hurts. And uh, the stinging words, who they come from, can be from close or far. It hurts. Don't listen. Don't listen. Don't focus on it. Focus on Jesus. Focus on him. Renew your minds. Renew your hearts. Get your heart right, because if you don't, you won't have a heart to work. You won't have a heart to work. So then, how can we keep from being overcome by the stinging words of Satan's servants? First of all, we need to understand that if we're about the Lord's work, Satan's going to use people to try to discourage us. It's going to happen. But do not focus on it. Trust the Lord. Believe the truth. Believe the truth. See, uh, that's how we fight our enemy, by faith. We trust in the shield of faith, which distinguishes every fiery missile. And then notice, secondly, from Nehemiah's example, get on your knees and get to the Lord. Nehemiah's a good guy. He's a man of prayer. And we're going to see that he shows God, he prays about God, shows him what's going on. God knows, but he's going to pray about it anyway. And he also applies truth to the circumstance, which is encouraging for the builders, as you're going to see. Because those who are attacking are not going to succeed. They're not going to succeed. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before they, for they have demoralized the builders. You know, Paul said he was the chief of sinners. Why? Because he persecuted the church persecute the church that's the worst of sin right you see that and so he says here nehemiah prays now this seems very heavy and should we pray this way every time someone says something about us oh lord do not forgive their sin may they be blotted out do we pray that way about everybody well how does this work with what we know in the new testament there seems to be some contradiction here but there is no contradiction as we will say The word does not contradict itself. There may be apparent contradictions, but when we delve in and we divide it rightly, we will see there is no contradiction. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Turn to Matthew 5. Actually, I'll read that, and you can turn to uh, 1 Peter 1 after this. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, the implication is pray uh, doesn't say how to pray, but it doesn't, I don't think it's praying that they're going to be not forgiven or something. You know, it doesn't seem like that, right? At least on the surface. What about First Peter uh, chapter 2? Uh, we see that uh, for this purpose, this is speaking of uh, believers uh, and then Christ, his example, First uh, Peter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his, for you to follow in his footsteps or his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't snap back. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Well, how do we reconcile praying for someone not to be forgiven in light of that? What about um, Romans chapter 12? Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. That's speaking of what comes out of your mouth. Okay? It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how do we reconcile that with the prayer of Nehemiah and other prayers in the Psalms? Even the prayer that Jeremiah prayed that I read earlier. 
How do we reconcile? There are Psalms that David shares that calls upon God to judge and not forgive. How do we reconcile these things? Those are in the Psalms. There are some unbelieving people who say, we need to leave those out. Those are for the Old Testament. Well, no, it's in there. It's in God's word. It's inspired by God and he wants us to have it. Now, theologians will call these imprecatory Psalms. I don't like that. I don't like that. I have a problem with that because the term imprecatory, you look it up in English, there's not from Greek, it doesn't come from the Bible. That's their definition in English, by the way. If you look at that, it means to swear, to curse, to blaspheme, to invoke, to bring down evil, or a curse to, to imprecate disaster. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't like that word. So I'm not going to call them imprecatory psalms. Theologians may do so, but I don't like that. That's me. See, I don't believe that's what's happening in here or in any of these psalms. I don't believe that's what's happening at all. I believe what we're seeing is simply God's people calling upon God's God to bring about what he has already said he will do, to bring about judgment righteously upon those who oppose him and his servants. So you're going to see that. And we see it's a calling upon God to address sin and sinners in relationship to how they have afflicted those who are calling upon God in the context of doing God's will. They're not, as we will see, personal enemies. These are people who hate God and are attacking God through attacking his servants. That's what we're going to say. So how do we reconcile it? How do we reconcile prayers like do not forgive their iniquity, return their approach on their head? That's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. Well, first of all, I think we need to clarify between personal enemies and those who are enemies of God and attack God by attacking his servants. In Matthew 5, it's quite apparent in the context that Jesus is saying in the terms of loving your enemies and praying for them, he's talking about personal enemies. He says, don't resist them, turn the other cheek, uh, give them your shirt, or if they want your shirt, give them your cloak. Uh, if they want you to go a mile, go two miles. Okay, I think that's pretty clear there, the context there. It's also quite apparent that Jesus did not revile in return. He didn't revile in return. It wasn't a, it wasn't, there wasn't action from him. And we're going to see Nehemiah is not reviling in return. Jeremiah was not reviling in return. David didn't revile Saul in return. We'll see his actions were quite different, even though he prayed that he wouldn't be forgiven, as we'll say. It's different. So then here we see Jesus didn't revile in return, but what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously, who brings righteous judgment upon those who were persecuting him, right? And causing his suffering, even though God was using it for good. He's a righteous judge. Romans chapter 12, it's speaking about our responses to our enemies, how we respond to them. We should never return evil for evil. We should never, with our mouths, curse. We should speak well instead of cursing, right? We shouldn't react. We should not revile in return. We should be at peace, try to be at peace with all men. We should never uh, bring forth our own wrath, but leave room for the wrath of God. It is how we react with them. We're to treat them in the right context, uh, in the context of giving it over to God, rather than being the judges in the moment, reacting towards those who are hurting us. Look at the example of David. Uh, the example of David. Um, in his prayers, they're strong. And he called for God to bring about the righteous veg- vengeance and judgment upon his enemies. But these were also in the context God's direct enemies, going and thwarting specifically what God was doing through David. Take, for instance, Psalm 109. Let's turn there. This is a long one. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let's, let's look at it. This is one of those ones they call imprecatory. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't think it's valid. Psalm 109. And you might want to read the whole thing because it, it does resolve itself in the end. We see how, how God uses these uh, situations to cause people to trust him and to let, leave it in his hands. Leave it in his hands. And that's what you're doing. J- judgment's in your hands, God. It's in your hands. And that's, these psalms are an example of leaving it in his hands, by the way. Psalm 109, for the choir director, a psalm of David, O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongue. 
They have also surrounded me with words of hatred. Hey, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the kind of stuff we're going to experience, by the way. That's what Nehemiah and those guys are experiencing. They have, uh, they have surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they acted as my accusers. But I, I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid evil for good and hated for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him. That's a person, specific person, by the way. And let an accuser stand at his right hand. I don't believe he says who it is because these are going to apply to situations that we have, by the way. We see that in the Psalms. Sometimes the name isn't there. It isn't there. It says here, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Interesting. Sounds like a king, possibly. Let his children be fatherless and let his wife be a widow. Let his children wander about and beg and let them seek sustenance from, from far, from sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he, that seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off in following the generation. Let his name be blotted out. Let in the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and do not let the sin of the mother be blotted out. Now, David is praying in accordance with what God shares about the sin of the fathers to the third, second, third, fourth generation of those who hate him. He's praying in the context of truth of what God has already declared will happen to those who don't repent, by the way. That's one of the keys. It's not a personal vendetta towards this person, as we're going to see. And if this was Saul, which it probably was, we need to remember how David treated Saul personally. He didn't revile and return. He actually blessed. He could have chopped off Saul's head in the cave, and he did not do it. He actually cut a piece of his garment off, and this is First Samuel. I cut a piece of his 24, cut a piece of his garment, and he felt guilty about that. You see, we are to not in any way revile and return. We want to do that. We want to be judges of the people. But we take it before the Lord in the context of truth, and there are times we see in Scripture where God, what they're doing, it's worthy of it. Now, if they repent, they repent. Praise the Lord. The Apostle Paul did repent, and God will relent if a man repents. But Paul would even say himself, he was the chief of sinners. He wasn't worthy of God's grace, right? Chief of sinners, but God is gracious. So then we see this in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus prayed uh, what would be called one of these types of prayers. If you think about it, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If thy kingdom comes, that means people are judged, by the way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let your judgment come and clear this all up and establish it on earth as it is in heaven, right? Got to remember that. Galatians chapter 1, what does Paul say? But even if we or an angel in heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach, let him be accursed. He says, let him be anathema. Let him go to hell. That's pretty strong words. It's pretty strong words. If that's what they're going to do, this is what God's response should be and is. He'll go on there and say, and as we've said before, I say to you again, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. There are some sins that are very serious that God calls about judgment for them. Now, we are not the determiners. We pray, God, may your will be done as you have declared, as you have declared. Lamentations, um, chapter 3. And actually, before Lamentations, uh, in 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, what does Paul say? What does he say in 1 Corinthians 16? If any man doesn't love the Lord, very second last verse, let him be accursed. It's a pretty serious thing. It's a pretty serious thing. And we have, uh, so we have back in our passage, uh, Nehemiah calls upon the Lord, first of all, to hear how they're despised. Hey, go to the Lord and say, tell him what's going on. Listen, Lord, we're your servants. Listen to what they are saying. Listen to it. He says, listen to how we are despised. Listen, O oh, our God. Uh, we are doing your will and we're being despised for it. Be despised for it. We're being attacked. Lord, I have 
chosen to raise my kids rightly in you and to, to be obedient in this and look at how we are being attacked. Lord, listen. Listen, right? We need to go to the Lord. We need to share it before him. We need to share it before him. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He's a godly man. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. And then notice he shares this response. or he, he, I believe he prays in the context of God's will for Ammon and Moab, what God had said in Ezekiel 25, that he would judge them. And I believe he prays in that context. Return their reproach on their own heads. Give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. There are some sins God doesn't tell us pray for their salvation. New Testament examples, false teachers. Stay away from them. Pits of black darkness prepared. Yes, that's what God will do. Now, could somehow, like Paul, one of those repent as a chief sinner and get saved? Yes, but God is saying this is what's going to happen. Unless a man repents, he will relent, right? You see that. So then, go back upon them. uh, Put their sin back upon them that they would not be forgiven. Uh, because they've done such a great evil, and they have, as we see here, verse 5, do not forgive their iniquity, let their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. Lord, these are those who are doing your work, and they're being demoralized. Nehemiah is not returning evil for evil. He is simply praying to the Lord. He is calling out to the Lord to bring about his right vengeance for their sin. That's what he's calling about, based on God's word, the great evil they are doing against God's people, and thus God. And again, as I mentioned, it's in accordance with what God would share. You could look in Ezekiel 25 of what he will do to Ammon and and, uh, Moab because of their attitude towards Israel when they were expelled. Their judgment was on the way, and he would have that Ezekiel passage probably. So then, no no doubt, uh, Nehemiah knew the enemies of God would receive his judgment, and he's praying about that. Think about Jeremiah, uh, what he says in Lamentations 3. Now, we always think of Lamentations 3, you know, greatest is faithfulness, you know, wonderful passage, but let's go a little farther than that. Because Nehemiah, or Lament- uh, Jeremiah was, was not having a good time with the people around him. Jeremiah 3:56. And this comes in prayer. This is bef- us before God, right? So Lamentations 3:56. Lamentations 3:56. Thou hast heard my voice. Do not hide thine ear from my prayer for relief, for my cry for help. Thou didst draw near when I called thee. Thou didst say, do not fear, O Lord. Thou didst plead my soul's case. Thou hast redeemed my life. Hey, you've been faithful. You are faithful, right? O Lord, thou hast seen my oppression. Judge my case. Thou hast seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. Thou hast heard all their reproach. Sound familiar? O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my assailants and their whispering are against me all day long. Look on their sitting and on their rising. I am their mocking song. Thou wilt recompense their, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You see it, you will recompense. What did uh, Paul say about Alexander the coppersmith? Alexander the coppersmith says, done me much harm, the Lord will repay him. The Lord will repay him. You see? Now, we see that, but we also see in Psalm 7, turn to Psalm 7, that the psalmist, same psalmist from before, also understands that if a man will relent, um, the Lord will not bring that upon them. Psalm 7, and let's go to verse 11. God is a uh, righteous judge, a God who has indignation every day. And they're praying in accordance with that. Lord, look at what they're doing. Bring your judgment upon it. But notice this. If a man does not repent, there's the key. These are unrepentant people against God's people that they're praying against, I believe. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He, he has bent his bow. He has made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he he travails. This is the bad person. Behold, he travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. 
He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. He has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will turn on his own head. His violence will descend on his own pate. That's the top of the head. And I will, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. Righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of our Lord Most High. If a man does not repent, he said there, he will sharpen his sword. We love to talk about the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and praise the Lord. But there's judgment also. And maybe even the context of these prayers, someone might see their wickedness and repent. See their wickedness, what God will do to them if they do not repent. Rightfully so, justified, deserving. Deserving of not being forgiven. Deserving. Hillary, you take care of that? Thanks. We leave vengeance in the hands of God as exhibited in our prayers. Now, I believe God, if you're following the Lord and you're, you're, you're walking with him, your heart's going to be right. And if the Lord would have you pray any way like this, it's going to be in the context of what else we see, which would be if they don't repent. You know, if they don't repent, they can be forgiven. You know, we're to pray for our enemies, as we see the Lord Jesus said. But here it seems like they've crossed a line. They've crossed a line. We see that with the false teachers. What about in uh, Revelation chapter 6? You have the um, souls that were martyred, and they're under the uh, altar. Let me read this for you, Revelation 6, verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw the alt- under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because they were serving the Lord, right? The word of God, God's word, and the testimony which they had maintained, and that's in Christ. And they cried out with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're not saying, please, I pray that they'll repent. I'm not saying there isn't a place for that. But there's also a place for God's judgment, as we will see. What about Revelation 16? Revelation 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou, thou art who, who was, O holy one, thou who art and was, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Now that's God's word. God says they deserve it, not us. We do not determine what anyone deserves. We pray according to God's will and what he says. So then, is it wrong for us to pray judgment upon those who are sinning greatly against us? Was it wrong for Nehemiah to do this? Well, from Scripture, it's not wrong for him to do it. This was not sin. This was righteous. Is it wrong for us? Well, in light of what else we are to do, we're to pray for our enemies. We're never to take our own revenge. We're never to revile and return. We're never to utter threats. We're to keep entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously. We're to leave room for the wrath of God because vengeance is mine. We're not to return ill for you. In light of those things, in light of that... Um, the Lord may lead us to say, Lord, may this happen to them. May you righteously do this if they don't repent. If they don't repent. You're a righteous God. And what that does is remind us, I believe in this, it reminds us that no one is going to get away with anything when it comes to bringing suffering upon God's people. They're not going to get away with it. And I think that's the biggest point out of this. They're not going to get away with it. Trust the Lord. Focus on him. And when you know that, and you focus on him, that he's going to help you, he's going to take care of those who are against you, don't worry about that, he's going to take care of them, then you can be about his work. Notice back in our passage, when we see here in verse 5, or verse 6. So we built the wall. There you go. We went and built the wall. They didn't stop. They were demoralized, but they got back to it. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. They're half done. They're half done. And notice what it says. For the people had a mind to work. They had a heart to work. You see, when you know God's going to take care of your enemies, when you know that he's going to protect you from them now if you trust him, when you know that he's going to accomplish his will through you, you can relax. You can rest. And you can have the right heart and get to work. So then, how are we to keep from being overcome by our enemy's reproach. Realize Satan uses people to try to demoralize us. He does. 
Secondly, pray about the situation from the right perspective. Understand that God is sovereign and he will take care of them. Pray from the right perspective. Share it before the Lord. And third, persevere in the Lord's work from the right heart. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for Nehemiah's example. And Lord, thank you for sharing these truths for us to protect us. You love us and you care for us. And your will is not for us to be overcome by evil. Lord, I I just pray that uh, we would take these words to heart that we would not be thrown off track by uh, Satan's uh, stinging words through his servants, but that we would see even the, the bit of truth that's there as a lie when it's not combined with what you have declared. May we trust in you with all our heart. May we keep about your work and not be detoured from what you have called us to do on this earth until we are in glory with you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we sing um, Trusting Jesus?